0: Welcome to the Bangor Sports Science Podcast, the official podcast for the School of Psychology and Sports Sciences at Bangor University. My name is Amir Sandu, and I'm the host of this show which aims to provide you with topical insights about sport and exercise science. Whether you are a practitioner, athlete, coach, student or just generally interested in sports science, we have a selection of guests from different backgrounds who are here to share their knowledge. You can listen to this podcast on all available podcast streaming platforms and can also view the video of the podcast on our Bangor Sports Science YouTube channel. The channel link will be in the description, so please do check it out. Please also take time to like, subscribe and share our content. Welcome to the Bangor Sports Science podcast series. The theme of today's episode is around the science of rugby and the episode title is Skill Acquisition, The Missing Link. The target audience for today's podcast is for coaches, for strength and conditioning coaches, physiotherapists, and doctors, as well as players and the general population. Now, we're delighted to have our special guest here today, Dr. Vicky Gottwald. Hi, Vicky. Hi, Awe, how are you? I'm good, thank you. It's great to have you here. Uh, Really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this interesting topic. Now, before Vicky starts speaking, I wanted to just introduce uh, Vicky's uh, qualifications. So she's a senior lecturer in the Institute of Psychology for Elite Performance at Bangor University, Her research interests are well aligned with her passion for skill acquisition and she's interested in coaching instruction and the way in which verbal instruction can direct an athlete's attention and consequently either enhance or impede motor learning and performance. She's also the talent identification and transfer lead for the Welsh Institute for Performance Science and this is a three-way partnership between Sport Wales Wales leading academic sports scientists and relevant industry partners who support multidisciplinary, world leading applied performance science projects that enhance the performance of Welsh athletes. She's also a UKCC level 4 basketball coach. She has extensive experience applying skill acquisition related theoretical concepts in practice and has coached across various stages of the Basketball Wales national team programmes. Uh, and that re- relatedly, she's the coaching lead uh, for Basketball Wales performance panel. And in that role in particular, she leads the strategic direction for the national team coaches. Now, to me, that's very inspiring. Um, it's a really great list of uh, achievements and roles that you're involved in, Vicky. Do you want to just uh, briefly say how you kind of got to the position that you're in today?
1: Yeah, thanks, and So, I suppose, yeah, as you said there, my, I'm very lucky um, that my, my day job aligns very well with my outside passions of coaching. I started off as a basketball player, went through the pathway, and then when I wasn't able to play anymore, then stepped into coaching. Um, uh, lucky, lucky enough to have the opportunity in my studies as well to, to study something very applied in terms of coaching instruction and the language we use and how that influences what we focus on, and then how that can influence um, our, our performance and learning. And then I've yeah. been very um, lucky to be able to to um, have the privilege of taking on some of these um, more, more applied roles, working with the Institute, Welsh Institute of Performance Science, and then still keeping my foot in the door with, with Basketball Wales, which is my. Yeah. first and foremost passion
0: brilliant okay so skill acquisition then um can you give us a bit of a background about what you're going to be talking about on today's podcast
1: yeah so given that we've got the, the world cup rugby on at yeah. the moment and the, the theme at the moment of these these current podcasts is to do with science and and rugby i just wanted to um step back a bit and talk about the role of a sports scientist in within a rugby environment yeah. and, and really where. we're we're very simply trying to enhance performance using evidence-based practice um, performance and and health as well I suppose and and typically we do that in sports science with these three main disciplines or branches of science Um, and the the ones that are probably more common that you've heard of is your sports psychology, your sports physiology Mm -hmm. and then your biomechanics but I think within those there's probably a missing link and and that's what I'm going to be talking about today and and the missing link I think is is, is skill acquisition.
0: Okay. Um, yeah, go on. No, No, I, well, I was going to say, how does that differ from what a biomechanist or what biomechanics is or what a biomechanist might actually do?
1: Yes, there's a lot of misconceptions in the field. A lot of people, when you, when you sort of plow down into it, don't really know what a skill, aqui- skill acquisition practitioner mm-hmm. does. Now, I suppose when you, when you have a biomechanist and you realise yeah, that I'm not a biomechanist, <laughs> um, because there's a lot of misconceptions that are one and the same thing, but a biomechanist, um, from my understanding, is interested in your sort of movement kinematics yeah. um, and, and the, the, the mechanics of how you move. And then in terms of skill acquisition, we're really interested in, in the underlying causes of, of those movement kinematics, so in, in terms of the way in which you practice. So, um, skill acquisition, we're, we're really interested in, in how we learn to move. Um, and, and the factors that, that, that govern human movement and, and skill learning. Mm-hmm. So there's various different phenomena, if you like, yeah. in terms of skill acquisition um, or th- theoretical principles we're interested in. I'll just give a few, a few sort of key applied examples. So the way in which the language w- w- which we use in terms of giving instructions, um, the, the way in which we give feedback if we want to make that effective in, in, in sports, um, in a rugby environment might be the way in which we structure practice um the way in which we implement challenge into pathways. so it's so all those sort of applied mechanisms mm. um and, and there's there's lots of misconceptions and misunderstandings yeah. for various reasons which i'll come on to talk about in a bit in, in terms of the coaching environment so that so that, that means that ultimately there's a lot of poor practice yeah. happening in coaching because we, we don't have many skill acquisition practitioners
0: so what would a skill acquisition practitioner do i mean I've played sports, perhaps not at the level that you've played at, and I've not come across somebody that's specifically involved in that role. So I'm not too sure. I'm sure you know some of our listeners and viewers might not know what a skill acquisition practitioner does. So could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: So typically, I suppose if you take a sports psychologist or a strength and conditioning coach, they they would generally work with the athletes. In this context, I think a scale acquisition practitioner could do that, but they're they're best placed really working with the coaches. Um, They might observe practice and then then they might provide expertise. Um, In terms of those sort of scale acquisition phenomena that I talked about, they might observe a coach's um, instruction, the language they give, and then they might provide expertise into how that might make that more effective. Um, um, It might be with regards to the Feedback they're providing, are they doing it at the right time? Are they giving is it detailed enough? Yeah. Um, are they giving it in the right way? Um in terms of structure and practice? Are they doing a sort of a lot of drill-based activity? Drills is a very yeah. sort of dirty word in yeah. coaching these days. Um, are they doing a lot of drills? How much are they playing games? How representative of the is the practice of competition? So it'll be giving providing expertise to the coaches. Um, in in terms of structure, in terms of the practice environment, really, and optimizing the practice environment for both learning and performance.
0: And what about coaching myths? Then, so there's a lot of things that coaches do because you've mentioned quite a lot of detailed information there. That's a lot of things for coaches to consider, but there's also a lot of things that coaches think are the yeah. right way of doing things. But actually, yeah. when you look at it scientifically and from a you know, skill acquisition point of view, it probably isn't the right way of doing things. So do you want to talk yeah. a little bit about those myths?
1: I, te- you know, I teach a skill acquisition module in Bank University. And one of the things I, you know, I teach lectures on demonstrations, on feedback, on instructions, on structure and practice. And the demonst- i just take, for example, the demonstrations. Yeah. That's a classic one. Because I'll start by asking them questions, the students' questions on... Um, do you think for example a demonstration needs to be perfect who should do the demonstration should it be the coach should it be the mm. athletes um, so that's where there's a lot of these myths so um, nikki hodges mark williams they, they've put together a really nice piece on this it was probably about 15, 15 years or so okay. sorry, ago but recently they've um, um, just reviewed this in terms of where we're at in terms of our understanding of skill acquisition principles are we doing a good job in applied practice or we still have a fair way to go. And I think the honest answer is we still have a fair way to go. Um, And they sum up these myths quite nicely. I'll just give you some examples of some of the myths they talk about. Um, So they talk about feedback. So um, a lot of coaches think that feedback should be as precise as possible, as detailed as possible, and given as soon as possible after a skill has been performed. Now that's not actually always the case. Um, A lot of the time, especially when you've got... um, Uh, more developed athletes, sometimes in in, um, higher stage of learning. Mm. Um, Actually, we want to make sure that the athlete has has some time and space to process their own proprioceptive feedback or visual feedback, whatever it is, so that they can learn to do that without the presence of a coach. You know, a good coach, their job is really to make themselves redundant. Um, So they need to make sure that the athlete has the skills and the capability to process feedback themselves. So that's one example of a myth. Um, if I give you another one, demonstrations is a, is a classic um, a lot of people think that the person doing the demonstrations in sport should always be the coach they think the demonstration needs to be perfect they think that we should use demonstrations all the time actually demonstrations aren't very effective on for simple skills because there's no. not much information to be gained from them um, whereas a lot of people think that the, the demonstration needs to be perfect and therefore it should be the coach doing it actually the demonstration doesn't need to be perfect as long as it's combined with feedback from the coach at the same time there's a lot to be gained in terms of those sort of error detection Hmm. and correction processes from watching a demonstration that isn't perfect as long as it's supported with you know instruction from the coach saying you know helping the athlete in terms of where they've gone wrong in terms of identifying those errors um and then and actually there's a few psychological mechanisms at play here as well it's it's great if you, if the person doing a demonstration is, is the same gender, mm. similar sort of ability. Um, there's some, some psychological wins there in terms right. of self-efficacy, vicarious experiences. Interesting. Um, if the person doing the demonstration is it, it sort of matches, okay, just the athlete in that way. Um, so there's yeah, lots. And That's lots
0: of a lot of things for, uh, for for somebody to consider if if they are coach if they're a coach yeah. working with a team. There's a lot of factors there that you've just mentioned. Um, I think the thing that rings out for me is giving the headspace, that time, for an athlete just to process their own feeling of how a particular skill went, mm-hmm. um, and then that can then then the coach can obviously then start reinforcing some of the kind of feedback, like you mentioned proprioception, some of that feedback that the athlete is experiencing as well. Yeah,
1: the, the, the interesting thing in scout position as well is is that coaches and teachers in schools as well they want their practice to look perfect yep. and actually good practice or the most effective practice environments, we want to see mistakes being made, we want to see that what we call in the skill acquisition world we call it interference, yep. we want to see that interference, that okay. level of optimal challenge, yep. um, skill acquisition should be periodised the, the same as physiology is periodised yep. in terms of your specificity, progression, yep. overload Interesting. reversibility um, so yeah it's really interesting from that perspective um, there's a lot of I said earlier about sort of drills being a bit of a dirty word in mm. skill acquisition a lot of coaches think that we need to, for every skill we need, to, we need to have a lot of repetitive practice of that one skill in a very yes. isolated situation so that somebody can build that sort of motor programme learn how to do the skill and then input it into, mm. into a game situation or, or pressurized situation but actually um, there's a lot to be gained from building that interference that challenge yep. into practice where the practice might look a bit worse it might look like there's lots of mistakes being made but actually the learning is much better yeah um, so we want to be throwing in a lot of variety in our practice okay
0: um, so, so if I try and simplify that from my simple mind yeah. is that we need to make mistakes yeah, because it's those mistakes that we learn from. Yeah. And by trying to think that only, only perfect movements or, you know, skill executions are the way yeah. forward, that's a wrong approach. We need to actually be fine with making mistakes and, in fact, analyse those. Say, why did those mistakes happen? What could we do to take corrective steps?
1: Yeah, that error detection correction process yeah. is key. It's that, okay. I, mean, I show my students as well that, that quote, that perfect practice makes Perfect. Actually, it's not the case yeah. at yeah. all. In able to learn, in able to develop motor programs, um, whichever theoretical perspective you come up from skill acquisition perspective, to, in order to learn, you, you need to you need to make
0: errors. And so, so where do you think you might not know the answer to this? But I'm just interested. Where do you think these myths originated from? This kind of like you know being perfection basically in yeah. training. Where did it originate?
1: So I think it, it originates from very sort of traditional coaching. Um, where I suppose we thought in coaching there was this perfect technical model that we mm. had to aim for, right? Um, and it was our job as coaches to be as, as prescriptive as possible and help an athlete to achieve that perfect technical model. But what we realise is realised now in coaching is that a, a perfect technical model isn't necessarily very flexible and adaptable mm. under you know the constraints of a game situation where there's you, you know. A lot going on, yeah. and a lot, and a lot changing, yeah. um, and, and you're also under pressure, you know, pressurised both physically and yeah. mentally. Yeah, um, the dynamic situations. Well, that, you you have only done that very sort of drilled, perfect practice, that all sort of goes out the window yeah. a bit, and yeah. you know, you don't have any, a, a, adaptable and flexible movements. Would
0: you say that um, doing the drilled practice is good for a beginner learning the skill? I'm talking yeah. about, so like, a, 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 like a young person picking up, a, or, or is this applicable even to teaching, you know, at grassroots level to children?
1: Yeah, so a, for me, I think everything has a time and place, I think your yeah. skill is very complex, or you've got begin- beginners um, maybe people with learning, population with learning difficulties, yeah. and I think, you know, drill has a time and place. And I think within a drill, you can also add challenge, you can add okay. variety, you can add pressure, and it still be a drill, and I think it's got yeah. a time and place. But some people within the skill acquisition field would argue differently, so okay. I'll, I'll try and keep this simple. But yeah. We've basically got these two competing um, accounts of how we learn to move in scale acquisition, and they don't really agree. And the answer is we still don't know okay. um, what the answer is. So some people believe that we should be coaching to a bit like the technical model, but it's an adaptable te- technical model, um, and that and, and everything is controlled by the, the brain. And, okay. and essentially, we, we develop a motor program when we learn to move, and that's stored in our memory. And when we need to use it, we draw it from our memory yeah. and use that motor program now, on the other side of the fence, we've got... So that's, it, that's what we call information processing accounts of mm-hmm. motor learning. On the other side of the fence, we've got these, this sort of ecological dynamics. Um, and that's really interesting. Now, now ecological dynamics researchers, um, and I, I'll try and keep this as simple as possible, again, for me yes. as well, but yeah. they, they suggest that actually movement and how we learn to move isn't a result of the brain. We don't have these sort of pre-stored... Um, pre-planned you know motor programs um, and actually movement is much more spontaneous than that okay it's a, it's a basically a spontaneous outcome of what's happening in our environment you know what the, the task constraints, individual constraints, um, and, and environmental constraints yeah. as well. So it's yeah.
0: much more spontaneous than that. Wow, okay. So that's new information for me because I always thought yeah. you, you learn a skill, you develop yeah. that motor programme yeah. and yeah. you kind of have that muscle memory almost. Yeah, you, exactly. you know, yeah. It's like they say once you, know, you learn to ride a bike yeah. and you've learned it once you might not ride for 10 years but you yeah. can still do it.
1: So, they, so the, the, this field of researchers would, would argue against that blocked practice probably in, in most scenarios okay. because... If you just do a drill, it's, it's so isolated from the yeah. environment that you're yeah. practicing it. Yeah. Essentially, they would argue that there's no point in okay. doing that. The drill, you know, all the skills need to be performed in the environment that
0: you're going to be yeah. performing it. it, it, it yeah, you're, you're, right. Right. you're right, with the pressure exactly. and the stress and the anxiety. Exactly. And, um, things, yeah, uh, they don't work in isolation. No, 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 other, yeah. no. Okay, that's really interesting. Okay, um, so we, uh, yeah, you've touched on quite a lot of things there, and I think... Um, the, particularly the feed, when the coach would give the feedback that was the thing that we, we touched on right at the beginning. Um, what about, and again I just want to highlight this point about all instructions are good instructions. Yeah, sure. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah that's why I suppose that's my real true area of passion within my research that's what I like to yeah. talk about. So a lot of time again coaches like to talk, they like to give information if they know, if they've got some knowledge, they're very keen to pass it on to their, their athletes, their players, whoever it is, their patients. Yeah. Um, but but actually, the language we use in, in coaching you need to be quite careful um, because the language we use in coaching can actually induce either what we call an internal focus of attention where you're focusing on the body. So mm-hmm. we take a skill in, in rugby, um, if we take a, a, a pass in rugby, if I'm focusing on, on the grip of my hands hmm. and that's to do with the movement so we would class that as an internal focus of yep. attention any instructions or feedback that talk about the ball or the target hmm. um, maybe it's a kick um, a conversion kick yep. or something so maybe the target is the, is the, is the posts and are between the posts then that would be uh, an effect of our movements. We call that an external focus of attention. Okay. And there's lots of literature now that suggests that, actually, if we focus on the effects of our movements as opposed to the movements ourselves, then performance is better, muscle activity is lower because our mm. movements are more efficient. So if you take, for example, a skill, if you just walk down the stairs, a skill you do every day mm. without thinking about it, um, probably don't do this, actually, but if you do it after this without thinking... You just go and walk down the stairs. If you start thinking about your feet hmm. and the movement of your feet in your body, you probably find that quite awkward. Yeah. And it, it's essentially because you're constraining those actions. Um, so, so actually, the language we give in coaching is really important. Right. Okay. We, we can help or, or hinder. So, in a rugby yeah. environment, any uh, language, coach uh, instruction, and feedback should always be directed as much as possible to external things. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot more nuances to Yeah, of, of course. That, of it's course, yeah. simple. So it might be the target um, or the trajectory of the ball yeah. to a target, it might be the seams of the ball, um, it might in some cases be the laces of the foot, for a mm. b- foot on the shoe for a beginner. Okay. Um, and you want to avoid focusing on the feet, the body. Yeah. Um, the hands. Okay. Yeah, When you listen to Johnny Wilkinson, there's a great video where he's doing coaching instruction in terms of the kick, mm. and a lot of the instructions he, give, he gives is to do with the, the laces on the shoe right. and the direction of the ball towards yeah. the post. Yeah. So it's very externally focused. So
0: you want to shift the attention to external kind of fokey of attention yeah, rather exactly. than the internal exactly. as much as you can. Okay.
1: And that can help you when you're under pressure as yeah. well because yep. you don't gain a lot of sort of explicit um, movement-centered information, so you're less likely to choke.
0: Okay. Uh, would there be times where you do need to kind of focus on the internal focus of attention? So or is that all bad?
1: You can probably open a can of worms now. Right. So, so I think my research is very interested in you know, 90% of the time it's probably better to focus externally. Mm. Um, I don't disagree with that. My research, I think there is a time and a place um, to focus on the body, but it, it would Primarily, I would argue primarily being very sort of form-based sports yeah. such, such as gymnastics okay. where proprioceptive information is really important. Mm. Anything sort of target aiming, um, which rugby arguably yeah. is, then, yeah. then, then really you want to adopt that. Right. Okay. Focus. That's good. To but mean. yes, with everything, I think there's a time and a place. If you're, I suppose in rugby, the only time where you might want to, and again, this is controversial in the literature. We probably don't know the answer to this yet, but. Is let's say you're a real sort of elite athlete, Johnny. Let's take. So I'm probably a bit old school. Johnny, <laughs> it's not yet yeah. sense to take anymore. Let's take the halfpenny. Um, um, if he's working on his conversion kicks, hmm. and that, no, he's he's a super elite athlete, hmm. really. Now, if he wants to make a really small technical refinement, technical change to his um, technique, yeah. then that's where I think there might be a time and a place to bring that focus right. back to the body. Yeah performance will get probably get worse to begin with, yeah. but then you almost re the correct technique, okay. and then performance will be even That's better. interesting. So that's where I think in rugby you might have that time in yeah. place right. um, to adopt that, that body-sensitive okay. information. And, and in line with that, it's a slightly different theory, but Dave Collins and Harry Carson, they've done some nice work on what they call a 5A model of technical refinement, and, and, and in that as well, they've got these five stages of, of what to do in an applied world when mm. you're trying to uh, make technique refinements, and one right. of those is, is this period of, of self-awareness. If you might. yeah,
0: okay. So this is amazing. Now, what I'm thinking is, should co- I mean, do coaches have this information already? How how much of this inf- great information that you've mentioned is in the kind of domain of the coaches, uh, and if it's not, what can be done to get it out to them?
1: Yeah. So this is the, this is a huge problem, and this is really what's brought me onto this podcast today. Yeah. So there's a real. You know I said at the start of the title this is the skirt position the missing link mm. and that's not just not just for rugby but all like, yeah. all, all sports um, you know we often see also at a high performance level I suppose our sports psychologists, mm. strength and conditioning coaches but this this these skirt position practitioners are, are really missing there is a few scattered around the UK doing some, some fantastic work but um, that they, they are missing now the problem is in an ideal world, you know, the coaches would have this expertise. But Hmm. the same as, you know, sports, you know, they don't have that sort of in-depth expertise of of these sort of skill acquisition phenomena. And they're not really built into a lot of coach education programmes. Now, I'm generalising here, but a lot of the coach education programmes within the UK are very much focused on sort of blueprints of how to play the sport. Hmm. They don't necessarily go into much depth in terms of actually how to coach. And that, for me, is... Is, is key yeah. really. Good coaching is really about building good mm. relationships and, and, and designing effective practice right. environments um, as opposed to just offering that blueprint of, of how to play the sport.
0: Okay, so if we look in the UK then, what's specifically being done then to support coaches?
1: Yeah, so recently we've got a, um, there's various, various sort of pockets of things being done. Um, but I suppose the most notable is, is recently through. If you've heard of BASE, I know mean you have. Yes, yep. BASEs, which is the British Association of Sport and Exercise Sciences, where um, in a way it's a governing body for applied mm-hmm. sports science. Um, now, if you want to be a sports science practitioner, you've got pathways within BASEs, for example, mm-hmm. to become a sports, a sports psychologist, um, a sports physiologist, whatever yeah. it is. But that pathway at the moment is missing in terms of skill acquisition. So what we've recently done is we've we've set up a um, skill acquisition special interest group, and that's chaired by um, Malcolm Fairweather, who works mm. at the Scottish Institute of Sport. He's um, a fantastic individual, um, f- brilliant expertise in skill yeah. acquisition. So he's driving this, and then a few I sit on this group as well. And I suppose we've got three main jobs to do at the moment. One firstly is just to raise the profile yeah. of skill acquisition, and podcasts like this will, will, will yeah. help. Um, and then after that, we need to make sure that we're going to make sure that there's a pathway for skill acquisition practitioners for, you know, for our students sports, yeah. students going through our university programs, for example. Then we need to make sure that there's, there's, there's CPD opportunities. For yes. Them. Yeah. So we're trying to build those CPD opportunities, or that or that would be the, the next stage of what we're doing in the future. So look at those through bases. And then the final thing is, what we'd really like to do um, is develop a work with bases to develop a skill acquisition stream. So anybody looking to be a sports science practitioner, they would have the opportunity if that was the field of the discipline they wanted to mm. work in to become a skill acquisition practitioner. And then you'd see, because it's a bit like sort of chicken and egg, then yes. you'd see these posts appearing a bit more in a in high-performance sport because I think undoubtedly there's, there's value for it and yeah. there is a lot of poor practice happening in sports. Right, so okay. you get a lot of bang for your buck in yes. terms of raising learning and performance levels in sports if we had this. Okay.
0: Uh, so if we've got any aspiring coaches listening to this podcast and watching it as well, um, where could they go to get more resources?
1: Yeah, so no, another great resource, we have a Expertise and Skill Acquisition Conference, which runs in the UK every two mm. years. That's a good one to look out for. And it's not just for academics. Right. It's um, usually a day. The first day is a bit more sort of academic, academically heavy, and then the second day is directed more towards practitioners. Yeah. Um, as part of that, it's, we call it the ESAN Group, so Expertise okay. Skill Acquisition Network. Um, should you contact us, you can, we can get you onto that email list. But as part of that, this Skill Acquisition Interest Group, um, we've, we've started putting together a Skill Acquisition newsletter. So, that will go out sort of every couple of months, mm. just with what's going on in the yeah. field, sort of key applied papers for coaches to get on top of if yeah. they want to enhance their practice. So, and, then, and just lots of opportunities going on within the skill acquisition field. Okay. Um, Rob Gray, he's also got a fantastic podcast, um, which is Perception Action podcast. You just type that into um, Google, you'll find yeah. that. There's lots of resources on there, right? Okay. Um, for skill acquisition practitioners as well. Brilliant. Um, so this part, and I think as things build and as the profile raises, yeah, I think we'll see more CPD opportunities yeah. at, um, and things like you know, the basic student conferences um, and, and, what and more coaches.
0: Yeah, and what's interesting is that for us at Bangor at least, we've got experts like yourself who teach the next generation of sport and exercise sciences skill acquisition yeah. right from year one. Yeah, they're so they're
1: the future, they're the future of our coaches, they're the future that's right coach educators, coach yeah. developers. Yeah. And then ultimately I do think it will feed into those coach you know, coach education programmes. Yeah. Education
0: Resources. Oh, brilliant. This is a, a, it's been absolutely fascinating. I mean, uh, we this, this actually such a varied field that we could probably go into several areas, into the nitty-gritty, and they'd be their own podcast, yeah. wouldn't they? That's how, um, you know, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. And I think hopefully today we've shone the light... On this really important area of sports science which is often um, overlooked and and i hope that you know this is now in this with all of the work that you're doing um and and all of the people in this area around the uk and the world that you know within the next decade we're seeing skill acquisition being a fundamental part of sport and exercise science the
1: other resource i forgot to mention is um Amazon there's a a really good (coughs) book on the myths sports coaching okay um, for people that if if you don't like reading academic journals and they get a bit heavy sometimes Mm. and that's it's a real nice book because it's really targeted at um, practitioners right okay first one looks at you know things like the 10,000 hour rule yeah um, learning styles and then in that second one um, we've done a chapter the chapter with Marianne Davis at UK Coaching and, and Robin Owen at Liverpool Hope where okay. we look at that myth in terms of every instruction is a good instruction so we delve a little deeper into some of those
0: things brilliant that's what yeah, okay excellent well vicky thank you very much um for coming on to the podcast if um our viewers and listeners want to get to follow you on social media have you got any social media channels uh so probably
1: the best one to use is, is, is
0: twitter okay um so
1: it's at got
0: old vicky brilliant okay um, twitter or now known as x
1: well yes, yeah, sorry x
0: formerly um, twitter. twitter
1: and this is i'm pretty easy to
0: no okay it's quite unique you're unique as well uh thank you very much vicky for taking time to come in and talk to us it's been an absolute pleasure uh and we w- wish you the best for your future journey Brilliant. Thank, thank you, you, journey. Brilliant. Thank, thank, you really Kate. thank you for listening to today's banger sports science podcast we hope you found it informative and enjoyable and look forward to bringing you more episodes please like share and subscribe to our content and until next time goodbye